Good morning, church. I want to tell you a little bit about Alice this morning. Alice came to college with three things. She had a backpack for all her possessions. She had a sleeping bag because she didn't want to mess with sheets and blankets. And thirdly, she came with a golden retriever. This was back in 1977 in the fall. And uh, the campus ministry, supported by various churches there, had a ministry to, to students on campus. And they had an opportunity about six to eight months before this to buy a fraternity house that had gone bankrupt. And so they bought that house and then they intended to use it for a, a Christian housing unit for women. And uh, the, the fraternity house was not big. It had eight double rooms upstairs. It had a large room downstairs, common room, and a large kitchen. And then there was a separate one-bedroom apartment. And the director of the campus ministry had been one of my former professors. And he knew that I only had a little bit, few classes left to finish up. And he asked if I would come live there uh, with my wife in that apartment, that I would lead a Bible study, uh, other, take care of other things in the house. It was called Covenant House because the women moving into there had to sign a covenant. And they agreed to attend, to be involved with one of the local churches they committed to having a couple of common meals together a week as family, and they committed to attending a Bible study that I would be leading. So at the beginning of the year, I helped the girls get in, get settled, and with Alice, I helped her as well. But during that week, I met with each of those young women to see where they were, to get to know them, their needs, their concerns. And when I met with Alice, it was interesting. Alice said, maybe I shouldn't be here. She said, I'm not a Christian. She said, but I wanted to, I wanted to live, live here and move here to see if Christianity is true. She was so open. Alice asked me, she said, I'm not a Christian. I don't know much about Scripture, but it would be okay if uh, you would tell me places where I should read to get an understanding? Yeah. She said, now, is it okay if... While I'm reading, I can write down questions and take these down. And then I can ask you the questions I have about Scripture. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. And she says then, I know I'm not a Christian, but do you think it's okay if I pray? Yeah. She was so open. And you seem that this is going to be one of the fastest conversions with her openness and willingness to study, to pray, to talk, but it was not to be. And Alice got me thinking about what is the nature of ministry? What is real ministry beyond what our gifts are, our, the way we serve? What is the nature of ministry that speaks to a life like Alice or maybe to those people who seem very hard and opposed to the gospel? That's the issue I want to get at today. What is the heart of ministry for us? And let me just say why I chose 1 Thessalonians 2. It's been a little while now since we had a retirement dinner for Gary. And they told us beforehand there was going to be an open mic. And so that afternoon, before that dinner, since there would be an open mic, I spent some time just meditating, reflecting on what I've seen of Gary's ministry in the few years that we're here. And it was this passage that came to mind. And I had a couple of things I thought I might say in that open mic time, but when we came, there were so many people here. 
and so many that had so much more experience and years and time with Gary that I didn't want to take the mic, the mic that belonged, I thought, to them. And so I was done with this passage then, except for it's one of those passages that just keeps prodding you, and it keeps speaking to you. And, you know, that, that idea of what Gary lived out and modeled for us that comes from this passage was something I kept having to come back to. And so I just decided that's going to be the next sermon I preach. And so, Gary, you're, I guess you're the inspiration for this sermon. And on behalf of me and my family, I want to thank you for modeling so much of what I want to say. But that's enough about Gary. I don't think a sermon ought to be about Gary. I think he'd agree. If we want to turn, and and really, let me just go back to the ministry is something that we are all called to. A couple of weeks ago, Gary was preaching out of 1 Peter and talking about this priesthood of all believers, that we're called to be a a royal priesthood. And last week, when Lewis was preaching out of the next section, he went back and spoke about that royal priesthood, that, that priesthood of all believers, that all of us are called into ministry. We are all called to serve, that a priest is one who has access to God, access to the presence of God, and mediates that presence to other people. And that is the call for each of us. Because when we talk about ministry, even though we may pay some people to set them a time, to give them time, full time, to do that kind of ministry, it's not any different than the ministry each of us is called to live out. So I want to look then at what is that heart of ministry, the ministry that we are all called to do. Let's be... uh, up front and acknowledge at the beginning that the biggest danger to ministry is ourselves. When we turn ministry and we start thinking about ourselves and our ego, we undercut that ministry. We damage it that the focus on ourselves ends up perverting ministry. I moved to a little town in Illinois for a while and uh, in this little house, and the houses are close together, and two houses down is an Assembly of God pastor. We got to know each other in the front yard, doing lard, and we started talking and spending time together. And at some point he says, John, I think I have a teaching opportunity for you. He said, I've got a group of adults in our church who want to have a long-term study in the book of Acts, and I thought you might be able to do that. I kind of laughed and said, I don't think that's going to work out too well. He says, well, why? And I said, well, my understanding of the assembly of God, you believe that there's conversion, but there, the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens later. And I think you can argue from the Bible that the baptism of the Spirit is when you initially are converted and receive the Spirit. I told him, I know you believe that tongues is the sign that you're baptized in Spirit, and I'm not a tongue speaker, and uh, I don't speak in tongues. It's, it, if God wants to have someone do that, that's fine, but that's not part of my experience. And surprisingly, he said, I agree with you. He said, I think baptism of the Spirit is what happens when you're converted. He said, tongues doesn't have to be the sign of that. He said, he said I don't know that I've ever been a tongue speaker. He said, something emotional happened to me when I was converted, 
And maybe that was tongues or maybe not. But he says, since then, I, I haven't really spoken in tongues. Um, he, he said, you know, that's just not part of my devotional experience in life. So being uh, young and foolish, I agreed to go teach there. And uh, you don't get very far in Acts before the Holy Spirit raises his head. And we're about two weeks into this study, and the pastor came to me middle of the week and said, we've got a little problem here. Some people are upset about what's going on in the class. And then he told me, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of that this Sunday. We'll deal with it. In fact, I'm going to deal with it in a sermon, so everything's going to be okay. Went Sunday, I sat in the back row in a corner. I wanted to see what kind of fireworks might happen during this. And uh, he got up and he wanted to start speaking about baptism in the Holy Spirit. And he made it very clear that first you get converted and later there's this second work of grace and the fullness of the Spirit. But they're very clearly separated. He went on very clearly to talk about um, that tongues was the only sign that you've been baptized in the Spirit. And, And further he started talking about the importance of speaking in tongues in his own life and how important that was in his regular devotional life. His spiritual life was speaking in tongues. I went home after that service, and I couldn't eat. And I waited about two hours to give the pastor a little time to eat, and then I went two doors down, and and he answered the door, and I said something bright like, huh? Which translated, how is it you just said and preached completely different from what you told me you believed and experienced? And he said, looked at me, and he said, John... If you're going to get ahead in ministry, sometimes you just need to tell people what they want to hear. Paul would call that a word of flattery. Speaking to please people, but to get what you want. Because if that church knew what he believed, he'd be out of there. Some years later, I was at uh, Vanderbilt during a summer doing, studying at some uh, seminars that were there. And it had an afternoon seminar, and the afternoon class was like three hours. So we had a decent break during the middle of that time. I got to know one of the students during that break. got talking to him. He was the pastor of a mid-sized church in one of the mainline denominations. And as I talked, I got to know him. It struck me that for him, ministry was like the kind of career goals that some of the people I saw in Silicon Valley had. You know, they had a five-year career goal, and they had a 10-year career goal. And he had this set of goals that he was setting for himself to get where he wanted to go. And for him, this, he wanted to get this doctorate from Vanderbilt because that would be key to his resume. And he knew where he was at this church, and where he wanted to go was up in the denominational hierarchy. Actually, he kind of hinted that he wanted to get away from the people and get up there where he would have some authority, some power. And he was at this church, and he needed to do a good job there, and then he knew, if I can get in this church, then I'll do that a few years, and I get to this church, and then I'm set up to get in the hierarchy. I've got it made. So in the meantime, he had to do well at his churches. And he talked about, one of the things I've learned is, when I'm working with, with people or talking with people, always reach out and touch them, because I've learned that that makes them feel cared for. It was a technique. It wasn't, he never talked about caring for people. He talked about making people feel cared for. 
And it was about time to go back into class, and he reached over and took my arm and just squeezed it and looked me in the eye so sincerely. Oh, John, it's been such a good time talking to you. And off he went. My arm felt dirty. His care was mere technique on the way to getting him where he wanted to go. Paul would call that kind of ministry pretext for greed. He had what he wanted. That greed is that desire wanting more. Paul at one time will call that idolatry because he knew what he wanted and he was just manipulating people on his way to getting there. One more. I was at a conference for churches at, uh, in Illinois one time and I ended up at a lunch table, I think. There were five or six guys from the same church and I was with them. And so we got talking about their church and what was going on and they were very impressed with their pastor about how clever he was, how unique he was. They kept talking about what he did to entertain people. And he'd get a, and you kept going, he says, you go next week not knowing what he's going to do. How is he going to top last week? And they told me about the time that he'd been announcing that he was going to preach a sermon on death. And when it came time in that service for the sermon on death, actually he had some people wheeling a coffin up down the middle aisle and the coffin stops right at the front and he has the people open the coffin and he sits up from inside the coffin and starts preaching his sermon on death. It was just a couple of weeks after Easter when I was talking to these guys and they said, you should have seen us on Easter. He said, he'd been telling us that uh, if we would fill the pews on Easter morning, he'd get up and he'd preach from the bell tower. And sure enough, they got that place filled. I don't guess it takes a whole lot to draw a crowd in rural Illinois. But they fill that up, and so then all the people go out of the lawn, and he climbs up into the bell tower and preaches a sermon there. And they kept saying, you know, you just never know what he's going to do next. I never heard them say once about how they looked forward to him expositing the word, of giving them God's word. The idea came to me at that time what was a mantra among youth ministers for a long time. It was, what you win them with, you win them to. And if you win them with gimmicks, you've won them to gimmicks. And now you have to keep doing better gimmicks, bigger gimmicks to keep that crowd interested. If you win them with Jesus, you've won them to Jesus. And now you just need to keep bringing more Jesus. Now, I can't make an evaluation of that pastor. I never got to know him. But the impression I got from these leaders was he was very concerned to be seen as important, as, as clever, as wise. Paul would, uh, and basically, maybe he wasn't, but you've seen, you know that kind of person. And Paul would call that seeking the glory of men. He was, seems to be, or you've seen those who are more concerned in what they're doing in ministry as how they appear versus who they really are. Reminded me, James Denny had an old quote, a Scottish uh, pastor and theologian. He said, no man can bear witness to Christ and to himself at the same time. He says, no man can give the impression that he himself is clever 
and that Christ is mighty to save. When we get ourselves involved and that gets connected, it can so undercut and pervert true ministry. Now, I've spent quite a bit of time actually telling you a few stories about those who get involved in this. And uh, if I were to justify myself for taking that kind of time, I would tell you from this passage that Paul takes about half his time talking about what he didn't do. Paul was aware in his culture that there were wandering philosophers, speakers of religions, sophists, rhetoricians. They were out there, the prophets for profit, who would come into a town and they would find those people they could get their hooks into. And when they bled them dry, got what they wanted, their money or whatever, they were gone. And Paul knows if somehow his ministry can get connected with that in people's minds, his ministry is lost. He has to make clear that he does not fit in that category. And so there's much defense here. As much as saying what we do do, he says what we don't. And look at verses 1 through 6 again and see how Paul is at pains to avoid that connection. He says, For you yourself know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, um, I'm sorry, excuse me, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Here's where I dropped into the text. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, if we didn't do all of these things, and interesting, he says, though we had the possibility as apostles of Christ to make some demands. He makes it clear he didn't do that. I mean, Paul could recognize, hey, we are apostles of the Creator God. And we should be treated a certain way. And Paul says no. And a lot of uh, my translation, the English Standard Version here, has we could have made demands. Other translations, maybe more, would say we could have been a burden on you. And what he does is the burden that he could have been, I think he ties in in verse 9 because there's a related word. The verb is in 9 related to this idea of burden here. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our toil and our labor. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul wants to talk about the key aspect of his ministry and laying it out to them that it was not about himself. In fact, he yielded what rights he had for the sake of them hearing the gospel. So as Paul turns away from that self, we need to look at what he says about what ministry is. If we want to move toward the heart of ministry, 
There's got to be a movement first to gentleness. I mean, if when we start to look at people and care for them as they are, for who they are, we recognize they're fragile, they're breakable, they're created in the image of God. And that demands we treat them with gentleness. In fact, what, what Paul says is right after, we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but he goes on, but we were gentle among you. It's interesting, that contrast of gentleness toward people versus what he'd been talking about. <clears throat> it's, the implication there is, at least to me, that when we are serving somehow ourselves, when we are treated people as objects to manipulate, to get what we want from, that's the opposite of gentleness. It is treating people with violence to bend them and twist them to our will. And Paul rejects that and he says, we were gentle among you. And he gives us his key image for that. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother caring for her own children. It's a striking image. The mother, the gentleness of a mother with his child. She knows the child depends on her for life. And she holds it, cares for it. It's a powerful image of the kind of gentleness we're called to treat other people with. It's not a very masculine image. Maybe some of those guys have a hard time doing real ministry because we've been socialized not to be gentle. I don't know of any guys in high school you ask, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be gentle. You'd been a butt of jokes the rest of your high school career. Recall, says we men and women are called to that kind of gentleness. We recognize how fragile human beings are. These are people in the image of God and they need to be treated that way. So Paul says, we became gentle among you. But Paul doesn't stop at gentleness. Real ministry doesn't stop there with how we are treating people. It forces us to look at what is it that drives that kind of action? What drives us, what motivates us to care for people? For Paul, I would say we, we, talk, we need to talk about a yearning kind of love. It's a love that, that cares, and it's love that is not cold and dispassionate, but there's a yearning within that love. I get that from uh, actually two things in verse 8. And the English Standard Version that I've got here, the New American Standard that Gary Reed follow closely, in a sense, the grammar of the Greek text, the, the structure and order. If you have a New International Version, it's going to be a little different, but the ultimate point will still stand there. But he opens that verse with a statement about care or affection, and I would tie into this idea of yearning, and then he has what he did, and at the end of the verse, he again goes back to care and yearning, and he says, because you would become, and this word there is actually agape toy. You would become beloved to us. You were the objects of our love. And to get this idea that we're called to a yearning love is to take that emotional statement at the beginning of the verse, this care, this deep care, and tie it in with the idea of love 
at the end of the verse. We're called to have this kind of yearning love. Now that first word yearning, kind of hard to get a real specific definition there because it, it only occurs here in the New Testament. And it's a rare verb outside as well. The only place it occurs in the Greek Old Testament is in Job 3.21 when he talks about in misery people yearn for death. So we often get pointed to some things outside of the New Testament and there is a little bit later time uh, there's a tomb inscription and the tomb is for a child and it speaks of the parents yearning for this child longing to have that. And so this word fits in that area of all those words of longing yearning, having compassion, when Paul talks about having his heart open to this people, his compassion for them, the word fits somewhere in there. But it is a deep, passionate word, and that combines with that idea of love, that we are called to a love that moves us to get involved, and that actually our, our emotions, our spiritual existence is tied up with how these people do. We care so much that they experience the goodness of Christ. That when that doesn't happen, it is depressing for us. And when that happens, there are times Paul can say, you are our joy when he sees the church doing that. Our life is caught up in how we're dealing, how these things go with these people we deal with. I want to move beyond gentleness, how we act. Beyond a sense of a yearning love of caring for people to one more place as we move toward the heart of ministry. And for lack of a better word, I want to call it transparency. We're called to be transparent. Transparent in Christ. That is, we're free to be who we are without putting airs. We do not have to put a facade up, a false front to, to give the impression that we are competent, we are capable, we know all things theological, we've got this handled. We're free to be people who are in progress. We have our wounds, we have our scars, we have our faults, and we know it, and we're simply called to be those people who can bear witness to who Christ is and what he's doing in us, healing, transforming. Paul, interesting, he never feels the need to come in and act like he's perfect, he's got it together, he's all there. That is, for Paul, perfection lays out in the future, and he strives for it, but never claims. And remember back in Second uh, Corinthians, when Paul has to deal with there are those super apostles, they come to the church with letter re- letters of recommendation, they've got resumes, they've got power. And Paul will say, I'll boast in my weakness. Because that is where God's power is found. And he is free then to be transparent with people. He doesn't have to come in as the holy apostle Paul. He can come in as a brother. He comes as a servant. And he simply lives his life in Christ in view of these people. There's a statement about preaching. Preaching is not so much about preparing a sermon and presenting that as it is preparing the man and presenting that. And if we're talking about ministry here, we ought to say that ministry is not so much about perfecting our skills or our gifts 
or studying and knowing so much stuff. It's about the process of becoming a man or a woman of God and transparently presenting that to other people. We are free to be men and women in Christ with our failings, and we don't have to give the impression that we are free of those and we're in charge and we're in control. In fact, an evidence, an evidence to Paul's transparency, it occurs six times in this. There are little statements he drops in this whole thing in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 9 and 10 and 11, just parts of those verses. Look at me. Verse 1, For you yourselves know, brothers, you know. Verse 2, we never, acted, we never did this in the middle of the sentence, as you know. Verse 5, we never came with words of flattery, as you know. Verse 9, for you remember, brothers. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know how. As Paul says, if you want to have questions about my ministry, if people want to bring up threats, you just look at what you know. The way Paul lives his ministry, the transparency in his life, is he can simply say, you look at what you know about the way I lived, and you know enough to evaluate how I carried myself. The integrity of my ministry stands on what you know and you have experienced. Let me go back to Alice for a minute. Alice went to Bible study. She went to church. She fellowshiped with Christians that whole year, and I never saw her move closer to a conversion. And the school year ended, and it was after the school year. Some of the people had already gone home, back to home for the summer. And I was getting ready to move on to another location, and I had a final talk with Alice. We sat down, and we spent time reminiscing over the things that happened, the funny things, the sad things that happened through the year, and then Alice turned serious. She said to me, during this year, I've been watching you. That's a scary thought. Living in a close situation, somebody say they're watching you. And she said, I never saw violence in you to your wife. I didn't see you mistreat her. I didn't hear you yell at her and scream at her. I never heard you raise your voice. I'm not that good, really. I promise you. You could ask my family, but please don't. I struggle with anger and all those things as much as anybody else does. And maybe that's just an evidence that God sometimes can shut somebody's ears so they can't hear. But Alice looked at me and she said, I didn't see any of that violence. She said, I grew up to the sounds of violence. She said, as I was a little girl, I would go to sleep hearing the sounds of my father hitting my mother. I heard her cries of pain. I heard her sobbing through the night. She said, I wanted to see, that's why I moved here, I wanted to see if Christianity makes a difference. She told me, I haven't seen that in you. And I've decided to become a Christian. We are surrounded by Alice's. People with deep wounds and deep hurts 
often covered up, usually covered up. And they are desperately hoping that they can see that there's something better, something different than where their lives is. They're looking to see if Jesus makes a difference. There are a lot of people who think uh, 1 Thessalonians was maybe the first book Paul wrote. I might go with Galatians, but a lot of people go with Thessalonians. And actually, that's the case. Since this is probably written before our Gospels, here is the first statement about the nature of Christian, Christian ministry. The first written statement here about how we deal with people. But I think actually Paul stole it. It was already in the air, in his culture, in the air for about 20, 20 years or so. I mean, think of one who came not to seek for himself, but for others. Think of one who came treating people the lost, the broken, the outsider with gentleness. Think of one who came with a yearning for people to come to God who would weep over Jerusalem. One who taught us what love is. Think of one who not only spoke the word, but lived the word. Who was the word? Think of one who taught us what it is to share himself completely to the end. And that's where ministry happens when he is formed in us. Ministry happens when Christ is formed in us. But don't forget Alice and Alice. They're watching us. They want to see if Jesus makes a difference. Our God and our Father, I thank you for the words of Paul and what he speaks about ministry, and I thank you for his imitation of Christ and his call for us to enter into that and to imitate Christ in how we treat and reach out to people. And we know, Father, that the world is watching. They want to know if Jesus makes a difference. And we pray, Father, that you would put it on our lives that we would live and become like Christ, that the world could see, that the world would know that you sent Jesus for our deliverance. We pray in the name of Christ.